0: Good morning, First Baptist. It is great to be back, and I have to thank my brother, Gary. How many of you would like it if the pastor called you on a Saturday morning and said, hey, could you preach for me tomorrow? I'm guessing not many, but that's exactly what happened, and I'm very grateful to him for stepping up, Preached an amazing message. She's a very gifted man, so thank you, Gary. I uh, deeply appreciate you. Who do you say that I am? This was the question that Jesus asked the disciples back in Luke chapter 9, verse 20 of the New Testament. He came to them and asked them this question. It's really the most profound question in all of history and in all of mankind. The question actually comes to you and I as well. Who do we say that he is? It's this question of who is god who is god and i love what a.w tozer said about this in his book knowledge of the holy he said whatever comes into our minds when we think about god is the most important thing about us now why is that Why is it that the most important thing about us is what comes into our mind when we think about God? Let's camp out on that for just a moment because it's true. I'll go as far as to say that everything in our reality, everything, without exception, is going to be Changed or altered by how we answer that question. Now, let's just think about the universe for a moment. Did it just spring into existence? Was there a big bang? Was this material just coming out of nowhere? And just by pure happenstance, the galaxies and the quasars, and the black holes and the stars, it all just happened? Again, it comes back to how you answer this question. And then life on earth itself, I mean, is it just pure happenstance that time plus matter plus chance, things starting out with just this goo in the swamp became things like kangaroos and box elders? (laughs) And there's the question of you and I. Are you and I just time plus matter plus chance? And then what about our relationships? Does my view of God change how I view each and every one of you? If one of you was to wrong me, is it my right to hate you for the rest of my life? Or does God have something to say about that? How I treat you, how you treat me. And then there's our own lives. Are our own lives just a series of random events? Without meaning, without purpose, going back and forth between happiness and pain, good times and bad times, joy and misery? Or is there meaning behind everything? You see, all of that comes back to this question. Whatever comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because what you think about God is going to determine everything else about you. Even the person who does not believe in God has to answer the question, what God is this that I don't believe in? You see, it comes back to this question, who is God? Who is God? We're starting a series this morning, and we're going to grapple with this question today and the next three Sundays. Today we're going to start with the Trinity. Who or what, or or is it an idea, is the Trinity? We would say we believe in the Trinity, but what is it we're saying that we believe in? This morning we'll talk about the Trinity, and then the next three Sundays we'll talk about the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, But this morning I would like to tackle this topic this way, first talking about what the Trinity isn't. There's a lot of wrong ideas about there, out there about, about the Trinity. And frankly, as we go through these, you may find yourself thinking, well, that's kind of how I thought the Trinity was. And you know what? That's why we're talking about it. It's very easy to adopt wrong ideas about who God is. And then secondly, we'll talk about what the Trinity is. We'll have a very short, succinct definition that we'll talk through a little bit, but we cannot talk about the Trinity without talking about something called the Nicene Creed. It's incredibly important to the beliefs of Christians uh, living in this time and this age. And then finally, we'll talk about illustrations that tend to fail. Most illustrations of God tend to fail. When we want to bring God down to our level, we want to simplify him, we usually go into a bad place. So we'll talk about that as well. Talk about um, these four movements, and I'd like to jump in now to these wrong views of the Trinity, um, what the Trinity isn't. So remember, if you find yourself um, believing in, in this way, just forgive yourself and we'll move on, okay? Okay, good. So the first, this first wrong idea I want to talk about, and forgive the big words, okay, but see, I had to pay a lot of money to, to, to learn these words, all right? <laughs> And um, so, I just like to spring them out there every now and then so you think I got something from seminary. So, the first one is subordinationalism. (laughs) Subordinationalism, very simply put, it's the one is bigger view of God. And it's the belief that all three members of the Trinity are God, but that one or more are greater than the others, that one person is greater than the others, or two are greater than than one of the others. And this really is sort of a a Greek god approach to the god of Christianity. In other words, people will generally view the father as kind of like the boss. You know, he's the one that's in charge, and then the father, and then the son and the holy spirit are sort of lesser. But this is actually sort of adopting Greek mythology into Christianity. See, the Greeks would view Zeus as the god over the other gods, and they were lesser gods, and they all did what he told them to do. But that is not the Christian view of God. We don't view God this way. We don't view the Son and the Holy Spirit as being in some way subordinate or less God than the Father is. Now, there are some verses that may tend to sway us that way. One is John 14, 28. It says, You heard me say to you, This is Jesus speaking, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. And here's this statement For the Father is greater than I. Now, I could read that and in one sense maybe think, Well, I guess this means that the Father is more God than the Son, but that is not the case. And probably the best way to look at this verse is the father is having more authority than the son. Uh, You could think of this as the relationship between you and the president of the United States. So, the president has much more authority than I do. But, the president is not more human than I am. We're both very much human. In the same way, the father is very much god and the Son is just as much God as the Father. Same with the Holy Spirit. Each person of the Trinity is fully God. One is not less God than another. See, the problem is typically when we try to oversimplify God. And I get it. Frankly, I like to make things as simple as I possibly can. And I was thinking back in college. I was, taking, uh, I was studying electrical engineering, and I had to take these Horrible, horrible classes. One was called electromagnetic field theory. I couldn't fill up a note card with what I learned in that class. But I remember you'd have to take, you'd have a problem that you'd have to solve, and it'd take pages and pages of math. And every now and then, it's very seldom, I'd work out one of those problems, and I'd actually get it right. Just every now and then. And man, you'd feel so good. Oh, I understand it. I get it. And you'd have kind of an aha moment. When you have those aha moments about God, though, they're probably wrong. You're probably oversimplifying who God is. See, God created things like electromagnetic fields. And we've spent thousands of years just untangling the creation of God, let alone trying to reduce God to something that's more on our level. So when we try to oversimplify God, typically we land in a a bad place. The members of the Trinity are in relationship with one another. and, And frankly, smoke should be coming out of our ears when we start considering who God is. When we try to reduce God, we're making him more like us, and he's different than us. So this is the first bad idea, subordinationalism. We don't want to subordinate one member of the Trinity to another. Uh, all members of the Trinity are fully God. One is not more God than another. Then there's a second mistake that we can make, uh, and it's something called tritheism. Now, this is like the pie view of God, okay? And I'll show you what I mean in just a minute. But it's the belief that all three members of the Trinity are God, but that they are separate gods sharing in a similar, and by the way, similar and same, the two important words when we're talking about God, sharing in a similar nature. Now, it's sort of a view of God like this. Now, honestly, at at one point in my life, I probably approached God as though he were three gods. I think it's easier for me to get my mind around, uh, actually, that we have three gods because there's three persons. However, that is not the case. Scripture is very clear. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, uh, that the Lord our God is one. Actually, if you were to go to a Jewish service, they always start out with a shema. Deuteronomy six four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? He is one. We have one God. So we'll try to divide him up some way. But when we do this, we end up with with three gods, or uh, more accurately, three one-third gods. So this is called tritheism. It's like dividing God up into three different gods. And again, this one just doesn't work. So um, this is a bad way of looking at God. And there's a third view, and this one's very, very common. It's called modalism. And the root word there is modes, and it's this idea that God has existed in three different modes, the belief that all three members of the Trinity are representative of one God who shows himself in three ways. Now, I went to a church one time that actually embraced, and they didn't even know it, but this was what they had written in their their, their, uh, confession, their constitution about who they believed God was. I remember reading it and thinking, well, wait a second. I... I knew enough at that point in seminary to be dangerous. And I remember I went to the, uh, the pastor and the elders. I said, you know, this is what's written down here, but I don't think this is right. And they looked at it and they said, well, we, you know, we don't think this is right either. We had a, a business meeting and we changed the doctrine of the Trinity in like 10 seconds in that church. Now, when we rearranged the chairs, it was, it caused an uproar. I tell you what, we changed that dog in the Trinity just like that. It was no big deal. Just don't, just don't change the chairs. Anyway, um, so uh, this idea of modalism, you could, you could say it this way. There's one God who's sometimes the Father, sometimes the Son, and sometimes the Spirit. Now, you can think about this in terms of a timeline, uh, right? So that God started out as the Father, right? He created an eternity past. He's eternal. He's always existed, But then he was born of Mary, and then he became the Son. So now you've got God the Son, but then he died, was resurrected, he ascended into heaven, and then he became the Holy Spirit. So you've got these three different modes that God has existed in. Now, again, this is very much humanizing God, and I get it because, see, I also, I have three different roles, right? I didn't become a husband until May first, two thousand four. I didn't become a dad till july fifteenth, twenty sixteen. So uh, you know, I, I, I get it, we, we have these different roles, but again, this is to reduce God to be someone more like us. It becomes heretical. There are denominations that fully embrace this idea of modalism and view God this way, but when we do this, we create a schizophrenic kind of God. As a matter of fact, you can illustrate modalism uh, a different way. Um, Well, uh, first, just let me mention uh, the Scriptures are clearly against this way of thinking of God. In John 1:1, it says, "In the beginning was the Word." This is speaking of Christ. In the beginning of the Word, it was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, how can that be? The Word there being Christ, that's clear from John 1, 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And it says that Christ existed before he became flesh, and he was both God God. And he was with God. Now, aside from there being two distinct persons of the Trinity, I don't know how else we can make sense of John 1.1. So it becomes more clear, even at the baptism of Christ, you've got Christ being taken down to the water, coming up, and all three members of the Trinity are right there. The Holy Spirit descends as a dove, and God the Father is speaking. Now, that doesn't make sense if God is only one person. So you can, you can illustrate modalism You actually think of it like this. Let's say that uh, when you hired me uh, to come here and be your pastor, that I kept talking and talking and talking about this woman named Melissa, my wife Melissa. You heard about her, you heard about her, but you never saw her. So finally you said, look, chap, we, we keep hearing about Melissa, so um, I tell you what, we're going to have a short reception at the end of the, one of the services. We'll put a table up front and we want you and Melissa to come up, and we want to meet and get to know Melissa. And I said, great, that's a great idea. Okay, let's do that. So the day comes, we have the reception. There's a table sitting up here. There's two empty chairs. Then I come and sit in one of them. And then when the reception starts, I take the microphone and I say, now let me introduce you to my lovely wife, Melissa. And I motion to a completely empty chair. Now, some of you are going to say, well, with the cheese has slid off his cracker, Uh, he's lost his mind. Some of you may even play along. and may come up and say, well, it's nice to meet you, Melissa. Chad, you have a lovely wife. But deep down, it's going to be like, this guy's nuts. He's delusional. But see, that's how we treat God if we say there's only one person of the Trinity, It's like we're saying he's schizophrenic, that he's delusional. Simodalism just does not work. It's just not biblical. We'd be worshiping a delusional God if we adopted that view of him. So these are some commonly held wrong views of God. There's others that could be included. Last week I talked, or two weeks ago, I talked about something called uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. It's viewing God as he's sort of this cosmic butler He's moralistic in that he wants us to be good. He's therapeutic in that he just wants us to feel good and be happy. He's deistic in the sense that he's just sort of far off and he wound up the whole universe like a clock and he's just letting it tick on, now being rather uninvolved. Also a wrong view of who God is. So the question is, okay, well then what is the right view of God? What in fact is the trinity And I think this is a good definition. I'm going to give you the definition, and then I want to go into some history. I want to unpack it a little bit. So first of all, we believe in one God, okay? One God. We don't believe in in three gods or three one-third gods. We believe in one God who is one in essence. Jesus is the same nature, not a similar nature to the Father, not a similar essence to the Father. Each person has the same essence, yet three in person. All three members of the Trinity are eternally God. Jesus did not have a starting point. He's always been all of whom are equal. One member of the Trinity is not more God than another member of the Trinity. Now, again, this was a hard fought definition to come to and now i have to talk about if i'm going to talk about the trinity i have to talk about something called the nicene creed now let me ask how many of you came from a denomination or a tradition in which you recited the nicene creed from time to time okay several of you Yeah, it's been around a long time. It's been around about 1,700 years. The definition I just read was derived from the Nicene Creed. And I want to step back in time, and I want to just go into some some history of of, of Christianity and the church and and this creed. So let's step back for a moment. And and right there when the church began, the book of Acts, Jesus has resurrected. The day of Pentecost comes, the apostles start speaking in tongues, lots of people are saved. And now the church is growing very, very rapidly. And it's a time of intense persecution. The Roman emperors were were vicious against Christians at this time. They were tortured. It It was very hard to be a Christian. So Christians are just always on the run. They end up congregating outside of Jerusalem in three areas around Rome, Italy, up in Constantinople, Turkey, and down in northern Africa around Alexandria. These could become three kind of centers of Christianity In the world at that time and again uh, it was hard to be a christian but then this one emperor comes along he kind of changes things around this guy by the name of constantine and this emperor constantine he has a dream he has a dream the night before he's going to go up against an army that's twice the size of his and he dreams that if his people put a cairo on their shield Those are the first two letters of the uh, the first two Greek letters of the name Christ. He dreams that if they put those on their shields, that he'll be victorious in battle the next day. And sure enough, the soldiers do this, and he's victorious in battle. So he starts to think you know, I think there's something to this whole Christianity thing. So he and his, there was a co-emperor at that time, a guy by the name of Licinius, they come up with something called the Edict of Milan. And in that edict, it's agreed upon by uh, Constantine and Licinius to to legalize Christianity. All the Christians had their land taken away. So it's given back to them. And it says that we grant to the Christians and others full authority to observe that religion which each prefers. So both the Jews and the Christians, they say, okay. You guys go, and you do your thing. So now some serious thought is put into Christianity that couldn't happen up until this point. People were on the run. So they're thinking about, well, what do we actually believe on a deeper level, which is both good and bad, because they start coming up with some pretty flaky ideas. And there was one church leader in particular, a guy by the name of Arius. He was, he was one of the first megachurch pastors. He was down in Alexandria. He was a bishop there. And Arius taught this. He believed that Christ is not eternally God, but a creation of God, the Father. Having his genesis or his beginning or begottenness in eternity past, he is the first created being. And this is a quote from Arius. If the Father begat the Son, he that was begotten had a beginning of existence. Hence, it is clear that there was a time when the Son was not. Now this became known as the Arian heresy, and there was a guy that could absolutely not stand this belief—a guy by the name of Athanasius. Athanasius had two nicknames; he was called the Black Dwarf and the Bulldog. Give you some not particularly flattering nicknames, but that's what he was called. He was tenacious. As a matter of fact, when he was uh, 22 years old, he wrote a book called On the Incarnation that is still in print today. And he was a bishop of Alexandria for 45 years. Uh, had five exiles due to the instigation of four emperors. He's best known for this stance against Arianism. So, whenever the Emperor Constantine finds out that there's this division among the Christians, he says, Okay, you guys are going to figure this out. So, he calls all 322 church leaders at the time to come to this place called Nicaea. It's basically like he's going to lock them all in a room. He said, you guys figure it out because I want all you Christians on the same page. And that's what happened. All of these bishops come in from all over the place. The call goes out. 322 of them gather together. Some of them limping in. Literally, there's were bishops who had been hamstrung because they had been tortured. One had his Achilles tendons removed. Another was nearly blind from the torture they had undergone. But they knew the importance of that question that Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? That's why they limped and dragged their way to this council because they knew what was riding on it. By the way, one of those bishops was a guy by the name of St. Nicholas. You may know him as Chris Kringle, and there's actually an ancient painting of him. He, as as legend goes, ran up and slapped Arius for this heretical belief that he had. He was thrown in prison but was released early because of his benevolence towards children. True story. So, all this is going on at this council of Nicaea, and they wrestle over who is God, particularly who is Christ. Is he the same as the Father in his Godness, or is he just similar? Did he have a beginning point, or didn't he? They held a vote, and 320 of these men, all full of the Holy Spirit, agreed that there was never a time when Jesus was not. Only two people were no votes, and it was Arius and Arius' understudy. And they came up with something called the Nicene Creed. Now, a creed is just a simple belief statement of a church. And I understand that there can be some reticence to church creeds. It's like, well, Chad, well, wait. It's like, we've got the Bible. I mean, why do we need to look at a man-made creed? Well, keep this in mind. That Arius was reading his Bible too. You see, what's just as important as reading your Bible is correctly interpreting what the Bible's saying. Because just about every cult and every bad religion out there is loosely based on the scriptures. At least everyone that's, that's been able to gain any traction. So these guys all come together and they come up with something known as the Nicene Creed. And this is an excerpt of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father of the Almighty, creator of all that is seen and unseen we believe in one lord jesus christ the only son of god eternally begotten of the father god from god light from light true god from true god begotten not made of the same not similar that was a big point same essence with the father this is the god that we believe in I very much confess the nicene creed as a christian it's been around for 1700 years and every major christian group believes in the nicene creed the inclusion of roman catholic churches and greek orthodox churches all baptist methodist lutheran presbyterian churches will hold to this creed there's a few exceptions uh, Mormons have a different view. Actually, the Mormon view is very similar to the Arian view of of Christ, that he had a starting point. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and his group called Oneness Pentecostals, who would hold to modalism. But otherwise, every major Christian group holds to the Nicene Creed. And everything in this creed is based on the Word of God. There's a number of scriptures that affirm the Trinity. The Godness of Jesus, for example. We've already looked at this. John 1, 1. The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, speaking of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is fully God, and the Holy Spirit is fully God. If we look at Acts 5, 3, and 4, it says, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? And look at this part, to lie to the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on. And to keep back some of the price of the land, Uh, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not under your control? And then listen to this part. Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. In the beginning of the verse, these two verses, he lies to the Holy Spirit. Then it says he lies to God. So the Holy Spirit is fully God, and the persons are not each other. This is the baptism of Christ as soon as jesus was baptized again he he went up out of the water at that moment heaven was open he saw the spirit of god descending like a dove and lighting on him and a voice from heaven said this is my son whom i love with him i am well pleased now this makes no sense if jesus is the father and the holy spirit is jesus or is the father it doesn't make any sense Same with the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit was the only person of God around at that time, you wouldn't have needed the previous two. So it just makes no sense uh, if each person is the same. Now, um, I appreciate people who have tried to illustrate God. That God is like this or he's like that. But the problem is these illustrations tend to fail. For example, I've heard that God is like a three-leaf clover. That each person of the Trinity is like one leaf of the clover. Uh, But see, that's got its problems. Um, if, If God represents each member of the... Each leaf on the clover is like, again, we've got three different gods, and we're back to tritheism again. Or I've heard that God is like an egg. You know, you've got the shell, you've got the yolk, and you've got the, uh, the white of the egg, but again, these parts of the egg are very unlike each other. So what happens? Well, we're back to tritheism again, three different gods. And then I've heard that God is like water. Uh, That a water can exist as a solid, it can exist as a liquid, or it can exist as a gas. But again, what is this? Ah, somebody said it. Good for you. Yes. Now we're back to modalism. That we've got three three different substances, three different states that don't coexist. Now, all of these tend to fail. I do like this diagram. It's in your bulletin. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. However, all three are fully God. You see, God should blow your mind. You know, I I paid a lot of money to get a seminary, and I expected by the time I got out that I would fully understand who God is. And you may be thinking out there today, Chad, I don't understand the Trinity. Well, guess what? Neither do I. I don't have to understand something in order to believe it to be true. And when we say we understand the Trinity, we, we're, we're starting to bring God down and break him down into something or someone who he's not. So putting this all together, believe with wonder in the God who. Is we should have wonder when we start thinking about who god is we should never if you're getting bored with god you need to let your imagination go a little bit and what he's done and who he is you know when i'm sitting in my backyard i'm looking around and i see all these blades of grass like there's just and i see these ant mounds all over the place Full of ants, and, and I, I, I look at these trees, and they got these leaves on them. I'm thinking, God knows how many blades of grass there are. He knows how many ants there are. He knows how many trees are on all the leaves in all the world. It's the number constantly changing. Then I thought, well, does he ever get like bored with all this? I mean, does it just get commonplace to him? And I love what G. K. Chesterton said about this, and we'll close with this. He says, "A child kicks its legs rhythmically through." Excess, not absence, of life. Because children have abounding vitality because they are in spirit, fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. (laughs) For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough. Uh, It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun." And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. Please pray with me. God I pray that we would never ever ever lose our wonder of you and who you are and that we would never put you in a box or reduce you to something that we think we can understand Lord I pray that when we are worshiping you that our hearts and minds would be on fire declaring the mysteries of you that we believe to be true lord jesus we thank you for making a relationship possible to the father by your death and your resurrection we again have a relationship holy spirit we thank you for gifting us we thank you for daily sanctifying us and for never giving up on us and for giving us hope And I'm thankful that we can, by your command, cast all our cares onto you. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.